Turn with me in your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 5, verses 19 through 22. Lamentations 5, 19 through 22. And today we are going to begin looking at this final passage in the book of Lamentations. And it's been quite a journey, hasn't it? I think when I announced I was going to preach through Lamentations, I could just feel the air go right out of the room. Lamin, what? Lamentations, that's like a one and a half day stop on my annual Bible reading plan. That's not a sermon series. I think that was, what was that, September, October we started in Lamentations? Maybe before that. And as, and as we've dug in and studied God's Word together, it has been such a sweet study, hasn't it? I think part of the reason why it's been so sweet for us as a church to go through this uh, book of the Bible is it's brought clarity to a passage of Scripture that was probably somewhat obscure to us before we began the study. And I admit that's even part of the reason why I wanted to study through it. I, I want a good working knowledge of what's in this book, and I've never really studied it. So it's been sweet for me to study it and preach it just because it's added a great deal of clarity to a corner of Scripture that was somewhat obscure to me. Additionally, this has been a profitable book for us because we've learned a lot of truths to guide us in challenging times. In fact, as we've studied through the book of Lamentations, really what we've received is a glimpse at what it looks like when God judges a wicked society. And for us as a church, that's preparatory. That's important for us to understand these things. Uh, not just corporately, though, but as we've gone through Lamentations, we've also individually been equipped to deal with suffering in our own lives. Of course, as the prophet has shepherded our souls through suffering, we've all benefited from that because we're either all suffering now or we're all preparing to suffer at some point. And so in that way, the book of Lamentations has not only been clarifying of what's going on around us, but clarifying of what's going on within us. In the book of Lamentations, we're reminded that faithfulness is our goal in the midst of suffering and that God's faithfulness is our only hope in the midst of suffering. And so in all these ways, and certainly more that we could list, the book of Lamentations has been a compelling study for us because it has met a need in the life of our church. And today, as we draw our attention to this final passage in the book of Lamentations, we see in this passage really what is our greatest need. So look with me at it. Lamentations chapter 5, and I'll begin reading in verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to Yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless You have utterly rejected us and You remain exceedingly angry with us. In this final passage of the book of Lamentation, we're reminded that our greatest need in the midst of sin and suffering is also God's greatest gift, and that is His grace. 
See, when we think about, when we sing about, when we live by grace, we understand grace to be that kind disposition of God towards undeserving sinners. It's the overflow of His goodness in our lives when we don't deserve it. As Psalm 46.1 says, it's the, the ever-present helping God in our life. That's what grace is to us. And there's nothing that we need in this life more than God's condescending grace. We need God's grace in our life to cover our sin. And we need God's grace in our life if we are going to move forward in righteousness. In fact, we've said it many times in our church. We need God's grace to rest in for the forgiveness of our sins. And we need God's grace to run in in the pursuit of holiness. Without grace... We have absolutely no hope in our sins and without God's grace, we have no power to remain faithful in the midst of suffering. Everything is predicated upon the grace of God in our life. And that's what we see here. Now, the prophet doesn't specifically mention grace in this closing passage, but the need for grace is what it's all about. If the people of Israel were going to be brought back from the exile, if they were ever going to turn from their idolatry, if there was ever going to be a restored relationship between Israel and Yahweh, it was going to have to be Yahweh's grace, Yahweh's work that was going to make that happen. That's what this final uh, prayer is all about. It's an admission that there was nothing that, that Israel, there was nothing the people of Judah and the city of Jerusalem could do to bring them back, themselves back into fellowship with Yahweh. It was going to have to be something that Yahweh did. In other words, the way we would put it under the new covenant, it was going to have to be a work of God's grace. You see, grace is the loving kindness of God in our lives. And that's what the, pray, uh, the prophet is praying for here, essentially. The people of Israel, they needed to recognize the disgrace of their sin, which we talked about the last time we were in the book of Lamentations. And they needed to recognize their need for God's grace for sin, which is what the prophet's doing in this passage. Israel's only hope of salvation from the consequences of their sin was the divine intervention of Yahweh. And that's helpful for us because even though we weren't a part of ancient Israel, we weren't in Jerusalem when the city fell, we weren't under those consequences of sin, it's still helpful for us because we still have our own sin that bears with it its own consequences. And the same thing that was true for them is true for us. Our only hope is the undeserved intervention of God. It's grace. That's our only hope. And so as we turn our attention this morning to Lamentations 5, verses 19 through 22, we are here to learn about the grace of God that sinners desperately need. Specifically, these verses help us to see four characteristics of the grace of God that deals with the disgrace of sin. That's how we're going to organize our thoughts this morning. Four characteristics of the grace of God that deals with the disgrace of sin. And we see the first of these characteristics in verse 19. Here, we see what we might call a reigning grace. And I'm not talking about water falling from the sky. Reigning grace, in other words, sovereign grace. 
We need God to be reigning over all things to receive His grace. And, and, you know, I was thinking about it in preparation for this morning. I'm not sure how often we make the connection, but in order for God's grace to be meaningful at all, it has to be sovereign. If it's not sovereign, it's not grace. Think, Think about it. If grace is not sovereign in the sense that God dispenses it according to His will, it's no longer grace. If if He dispenses His goodness and His help based on what we have done or any other factor outside of Himself, then it's no longer grace. It's something that's merited or earned. I don't want to try to exist under a system like that, and the Scriptures don't teach that. Uh, If grace is to be grace, it has to be sovereign. Uh, Additionally, if grace is not sovereign in the sense that God controls all things, then then grace becomes uncertain rather than trustworthy. There is nowhere in the Scriptures where God tells His people, you trust in my grace and I'll do the best I can to make these things happen. Remember when the desperate father goes before Jesus for, for the help of his son and, and says, if you can, you pour out your grace on my son, if you can. And Jesus says, if I can, you believe me enough to come to me, but you have weak faith because you don't believe that I can. If God's grace is not sovereign in the sense that he controls all things, how can we understand the gracious promise and trust in it from Romans eight twenty eight? God works together all things for good for those who love Him and been called according to His purpose. If He's not sovereign over all things, how can we work all things for good in my life? How can I trust that promise? Does that promise then become, well, I know God will be gracious to me when He can, but some things are beyond His control. That is more than a slippery slope you don't want to go down. God's grace It has to be sovereign. You see, grace is God's undeserved, meticulous care for His people in everything, which requires His sovereignty over everything. And this, by the way, is what explains the prophet's words here. This is why the prophet ends this book in verse 19 with a description of God's eternal reign. But you, O Lord, reign forever. The prophet understood that his prayer, his hope, his faith, they were all predicated upon the sovereignty and the control of God over his circumstances. Earlier in the book, the prophet recognized the sovereignty of God in Israel's punishment, and now he's recognizing the need for that same sovereign God to intervene with grace for salvation. God was the one who controlled Babylon when they came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and carried the people off in exile. And if the people were ever going to get out of exile, it was going to have to be because that same sovereign God brought them back. The only hope for Israel was a divine ruler pouring out His sovereign grace on an undeserving people. That's what had to happen. The prophet understood that. And by the way, notice how the prophet describes this reigning grace of God. He he describes it as what we might call an immutable reign. Immutable. What is immutable? Immutable is a theological term that means it doesn't change. 
It's not changing. Verse 19 says, But you, O Lord, reign forever. Here the prophet is alluding to the, the, the unchangeableness of God's nature, His character, His will, His perfections. It's immutable. In fact, what's interesting here, in the beginning of verse 19, the word translated in your English text, reign, it's, it's actually just the simple Hebrew word that means sit. And there are good contextual reasons why the, the, the translators translate it reign, and often it's used in that context. And, and in this context, no doubt it's talking about that. But, but the word just means to sit, to, to remain, to, to dwell. As one commentator put it, sitting denotes the permanent posture of sovereignty and supremacy. And this is particularly important in this context because of what the prophet just said in verse 18. In verse 18, the prophet says, For Mount Zion, which lies desolate. Where was Mount Zion? It was in Jerusalem. What was on Mount Zion? The temple. Where was the temple? Gone. The temple was the special dwelling place of God with His people. And now there's no temple there, and jackals, animals were prowling over it. There was no worship of God. There was no communion with God there. The temple, which the people looked to, was completely gone. And yet now in verse 19, the prophet says, the temple is gone, but God has not moved. He's right where He always was. The destruction of the temple did not affect the seat of God's power or the nature of His sovereign grace. And this is such a comforting truth for us. The immutable, unchangeable nature of God is what makes His promises of grace sure and certain. When God makes a promise to you, when God explains His grace to you, when you see God's grace, you can be certain that it will be the same today, tomorrow, and forever. Because Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. And all the grace that we have from God comes to us through Christ. We do not serve a capricious God. We do not serve a God who's going to change His character, His demands, His laws, the way He deals with us, His promises. We don't serve a God who's going to renegotiate for better terms. We serve an immutable God who remains seated sovereignly over all things. No matter what is going on in our lives at this very moment or in our hearts at this very moment, God is seated exactly where He has always been seated over all things. And, 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 and notice this idea of reigning, this idea of sovereignty, it, it's, it's not just an immutable reign, it's a sovereign reign. Because the prophet adds, your throne endures to all generations. That, by the way, is why the translators translate the word sit as reigns. Because he's sitting where? On his throne. What do you do when you're sitting on your throne? You're, you're enthroned. You're reigning. So that's why they did that. But here we see that God is seated on his throne. And, and God's throne represents his government over all his creation, which continues in perpetuity for all generations. Your throne endures to all generations. 
In other words, he reigns unto forever and every point in between. The beginning of verse 19, God's sovereign reign, it's to forever. And then the prophet adds, in every subsequent generation between now and forever, he's still reigning. It's a permanent, it's a perpetual control over all things. The prophet brings this up here in verse 19 because the immediate hope of grace for Israel was tied to the eternal reign of their God. The prophet recognized only an immutably sovereign God can provide the grace that we need to deal with sin. Only an immutably sovereign God can provide the grace that undeserving sinners need to be saved from their sins. In that way, a reigning grace or sovereign grace, it's the only kind of grace there is and it's exactly the kind of grace that we need. We need a reigning grace. Notice also a second characteristic of the grace that we need in verse 20. Here we learn about what we might call a remembering grace. So we have a reigning grace. Here we see what we might call a remembering grace. You see, the, the, the daily grace, the daily help that we need from God, it requires that God remember His promises and remember His people. There is no point at which we can go before the throne of grace and say, I have done this for you, God. Now you must show me grace. That's not what grace is predicated upon. Grace, God pouring out His undeserved goodness in our life, it is predicated upon not us earning it, but upon God remembering His promises and remembering His people. After the fall of Jerusalem, Israel needed God to remember them and remember His covenant promises to them. And, and notice how the prophet highlights this remembering grace by addressing what would happen if God didn't remember. It says in verse 20, why do you forget us forever? And, and what's interesting here is in this, the, the prophet is giving voice to the struggle of a faithful saint who's in the midst of a prolonged trial, isn't he? You've been through that trial before. You know this prayer. This is actually a common prayer. Uh, uh, the prophet here is using the language that King David used in Psalm 13. When David says, why will you forget me forever? Now, he gets to the end of the psalm in Psalm 13 and says, your loving kindness endures forever. And I'm the recipient of that. And of course, I'm paraphrasing that. But that's the language that the prophet is drawing on. And he recognized that in this moment right now, he felt forever forgotten. And he knew that as long as he remained forgotten by God, there was no hope for him at all. Which meant what had to happen? God had to remember him. Actually, chapter 5 is just one long prayer. And in chapter 5, verse 1, do you remember how this long prayer started? Remember, O Lord, what has befallen. Look and see our disgrace. If we are going to be saved and helped in the midst of the disgrace of sin, it's going to require that God remember us. 
See, if God did not remember his promises to Israel, then those people would have remained forgotten forever. And this is actually significant for us to just think through and camp on a minute, for a minute because remember and forget, that's actually Old Testament covenant language. Read through the Old Testament narratives and how often do you read that, that Yahweh remembered his promises to Abraham? And, and read through the book of Deuteronomy and in the book of Deuteronomy, which is the flip side of that, where the people of Israel need to remember their covenant with God, over and over and over and over again, the people are commanded, you need to remember. Do not forget. This is covenant language. So in this moment, the prophet is essentially saying, you have removed our covenant blessings. You are enacting the covenant curses. And what we need is for you to remember your covenant blessings and remember your covenant promises. That's the situation we're all in. Certainly a different covenant and different situation in the details of it, but ultimately what we need is for God to remember us with His covenant grace. And the good news is that even though sometimes it feels like forever when God's disciplining us, God never forgets His promises. Leviticus chapter 26 has remarkably similar language. Again, this is in the context of covenant worship and the covenant relationship that Israel had with their people. And Leviticus 26, verse, 20, uh, verse 44, I should say. God is talking about the discipline for punishment and all of those things. And he says, yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, where was Israel at the time that Lamentations was written? They've been carried off in exile, right? So it's talking about that very time. This is a promise from God for that very time. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am Yahweh their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord." The prophet's saying, look, as long as we remain under your discipline, as long as we are under the curses of the covenant, we have no hope. You have to do what you promised. You have to remember us. That's the point. And really, the underlying principle is that only the covenant grace of God can remove the covenant sin of Israel. If it's not for God remembering His promises then Israel will remain forgotten and unforgiving. They need God to remember. And not only to remember the promises He's made, but remember specifically the people of the promise. You see, in Scripture, God's people essentially are those to whom He has made His covenant promises. And at that time, Israel did not feel remembered by God. In fact, the prophet says, why do you forsake us for so many days? And to be forsaken... It, it's talking about the abandonment of God. Not ultimate abandonment, we know, but, 
the loss of communion with God, the loss of the, the benefits of the covenant with God. There was no fellowship with God. There was no benefit of being a part of God's covenant people at that moment. God had handed them over to their sin with all its consequences, and He had cut them off from all those blessings. Which is why their only hope was the remembering grace of God to remember His promises and His people. God didn't remember that they would stay forgotten and forsaken forever. And by the way, as you think through all of this, it's important to notice what is said, but I think it's also instructive to, to, to consider what is not said here. And notice the prophet never appeals to anything about the people or what they had done as a reason for mercy. He never does. He never says, God will make you a deal. We'll turn things around if you'll bring us back after we turn things around. That's not how it happened. The, the only hope that they had in the face of their disgraceful fall was a God who would remember His promises to them. And for us, again, our historical circumstances, even the covenant that we're in now is different than it was for the prophet at that time. But the principle remains the same, doesn't it? Our only hope is that God remembers His promises. Our only hope is that God will remember His people in the final judgment. That's our only hope. And can I tell you, friend, there is not a more sure hope in the universe. Not one. There is not a single promise that God will forget and not one of His children will be forsaken. Ever. Yeah, sometimes it's hard to trust that God is going to keep every promise He's ever made. But He will. That's why He sent Christ. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Christ in His work on the cross through His death and then His resurrection through His perfect righteousness and atoning sacrifice, His work is the key that substantiates all the promises of God. If we can trust God to do that work, then every other promise is a lock. And by the way, just as sure as you can trust God to remember every one of His promises, you can trust God to remember every one of His people. Sometimes we get a little self-focused, which is kind of a Christianized way of saying selfish. <laughs> what is self-focused? You're being selfish. You're being selfish. And sometimes it's easy for us to trust, yes, that promise of God is true. But I don't know if it's true for me. As if God would remember His promise, but forget His people. But what the prophet recognizes is that the people are made by the promise. The people are people of the promise. And not only will God remember His promises, He will remember His people. Which is good, because only a God who remembers His promises and His people can provide the grace that we need to deal with sin's dis disgrace. Remembering grace is exactly what sinners like us need. We need a reigning grace. We need a remembering grace. Additionally, 
Verse 21, we have a third characteristic of grace that we see in this passage. Here we learn about another aspect of grace that we need in our life. And and this is what we might call a restoring grace. A restoring grace. See, to be restored means to be brought back to a previous position, to return to the way things were supposed to be. And if Israel was going to return back to the land and return back to the way things were supposed to be when the covenant was first made, you know what it was going to require? It was going to require grace. Israel was not going to be able to rebuild the nation. They weren't going to overcome the Babylonians from within. Only God could restore it. And only a work of grace was going to make that happen. And, and, and notice how the prophet is describing this restoration that comes from God. The prophet says, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Now, it's interesting. You see the word restore and restored. So restore happens twice in this verse. And it's interesting to notice that because anytime you see the same word twice in one sentence, you say, well, there's a point of emphasis. There's a little Bible study tip for you. But what's also interesting, which you may not pick up from your translation, is that the word restore here, it's actually the Hebrew word shuv, which means to turn or to repent. It's actually the language of repentance that's taking place here. You might even translate what the prophet says here is, turn us to yourself that we might be turned. Or maybe if you wanted to describe it kind of loosely in theological terminology, you might even say what the prophet is saying here is, Lord, grant us repentance so that we can repent. You see, Israel, if they were going to be restored, if they were going to be brought back, they had to repent and turn to the Lord. Like Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse one through, verses 1 through 3 brings this out. Again, God is saying, here's what's going to happen. And it, and it follows exactly what happened to them when the Babylonians came through and defeated them. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God then is instructing the people, when this happens, here's what you're going to have to do. And it says in Deuteronomy 30, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, like Babylon, and return to the Lord. Return. Same word. Shuv. Repent. Come back to the Lord. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children and obey His voice in all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul. What is this? It's repentance language. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. What was going to be required of them? They had to repent. And so in Lamentations, you think the prophet doesn't know that? He's been living Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, I guarantee you the prophet had those scrolls out and he was living in those texts during this time. 
He knew if we are going to be brought back, we are going to have to repent and turn back to Yahweh. How's that going to happen? I mean, here's a guy in the prophet who preached to these people for decades and he warned them about idolatry. He warned them about the sins of their heart and they would not repent. He was a faithful preacher of the word his entire life, his entire ministry for decades and there was little to no fruit to show for it. The people were hardened to God and they would not repent. And so as the prophet is thinking through this, if they're going to be restored, they have to repent. How is this going to happen? Oh, I know. Lord, you have to grant them repentance. You have to give them the grace that they need. You see, repentance is always the human prerequisite for a restored relationship with God. It's always required from us. But repentance always requires grace from God. God through His Spirit is the one who grants sinners like us the capability to repent and turn back to Him. This is certainly clear in the prophet's prayer here. If we're going to repent, you have to grant us repentance. You have to turn us so we'll turn to you. And it's confirmed and made even more clear in the New Testament. In a passage like Acts chapter 11, verse 18, it says, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, this was their praise. We get into some of these issues and it's like, boy, this is a sticky issue for the church to work through. And boy, we got to be careful. They, in Acts, were just praising the Lord for it. We accept it. We don't have to understand it. We're praising the Lord for it. And what did they praise the Lord saying? Then to the Gentiles also God has granted, gifted repentance that leads to life. Where did the repentance come from? Did the Gentiles kind of drum it up in their own hearts as they were convinced by science and solid arguments? No. God graced them with that repentance so that they could turn to Christ for salvation. This is the same principle that we see at work in Paul's letter to Timothy. Paul was writing on some of these things in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and he was talking to a young pastor about, look, don't argue with pugnacious people. And part of the reason why is you never know what God's going to do in somebody's heart. So he goes to this long list of things on how to correct opponents with gentleness. And then he says at the end of verse 25, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Where does repentance leading to the knowledge of truth come from? It comes from God. God is the one who grants repentance by His grace. And and by the way, the repentance that God grants to us by His grace, it not only comes from God, but it drives us to God. So somebody might ask, well, if if God's the one who does it by His grace, how do I know if I've got this repentance? How do I know? Well, the answer is the true repentance, the grace for repentance that God gives, it always leads to us turning to God, to submitting to Him. If you in your life have turned away from your sins and turned to Christ as Lord and Savior, you can look back on that and say, there is no way I did that. Not on my own. It was a work of grace in my heart that allowed me to do that. 
If you've been driven to God for salvation and, and driven to God's truth to submit your life to it, you can look back and say, wow, the Spirit has been gracious to grant me repentance. I mean, we see that even in verse 21. It says, turn us or restore us. And notice what it says. To yourself. If the people were ever going to get back to their city and to ba- back to their covenant privileges, first they had to get back to their God. The people needed to be brought back to God by grace before they could be brought back from the exile. And here we see kind of both sides of the equation, don't we? We see God's side of the equation and that His sovereign grace is what grants us the capacity to be able to do it. And we see from the human perspective, our responsibility is to repent and turn to faith in our God. That's the only hope that we have. We must look to the God who will grant us repentance leading unto restoration. Think about how gracious God is in that. I mean, we're way off the notes now, but think about that for a second. We're hardened sinners who rebelled against God and on our own, we would never repent. God has every right to take every one of us and just hand us over to sin. But He grants rebels the grace to repent. You never would turn back to me on your own. You never would receive my grace on your own. So I'm going to give you grace so that you can receive my grace. What a gracious God we serve who grants repentance to rebels and provides us with the grace that we need to deal with sins to disgrace. A restoring grace, that's exactly what we need. It's the character of God's grace. And of course that leads us to this last fourth characteristic of grace that we see at the end of verse 21 and in verse 22. Here we see, and and if you're paying close attention, you might even already have it down because it's right there in the text. But here we see what we might call a renewing grace. Reigning grace, remembering grace. And of course, we just talked about a restoring grace. And now we're renewing grace. And I know some of you, this is a pastoral shepherding moment for you, but I know some of you give me a hard time for my alliterations. You check the text, all those R's are right there in the Bible. That's the Holy Spirit through the translators alliterating that, not me. All right? All right? Four R's, those came right there from the Bible in front of you. So I don't want to hear about that one later. I know I've, I know I've given some duds before, Okay? I know some strange alliterations have come out of my mouth before, but this one's textual. And this last one, the prophet prays, renew our days as of old. And and, and here, we, we begin to think through these things and begin to realize that in order for sinners to be restored unto a right relationship with God, they have to be renewed by God. You can't. You can come to God just as I am, but you're not going to stay just as you are if you're in relationship with God. It doesn't work that way. 
You know, I've, I've talked to people who are running away from the Lord and say, well, I've been saved and God accepts me just the way I am. No, he doesn't. That's the point. If he accepted you just the way you are, then he wouldn't have had to send Christ as a substitute for you and he wouldn't have sent his spirit to sanctify you. You've got to be renewed by God. The God who justifies us and turns us to him is also the God who sanctifies us and changes us. You cannot enjoy fellowship with God if you remain in unbroken fellowship with sin. Now, that's why so many believers lack assurance. They don't want to take that decisive step to, to cut ties with their old sin. And so as a result, they forfeit the assurance that they could have if they would follow God in that. See, the prophet understood if if. If we're going to be returned back to God, it's going to have to be because of a renewing work that God does. And here's the wonderful thing. We serve a God who has a renewing mercy He pours out on His people. In fact, you want renewing daily grace for sanctification? How about this reminder from Lamentations 3? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies come, never come to an end. They're what? They are new every morning. You see, the grace of God that comes into our life and saves us is the grace of God that continues with us. That's why the prophet says we have to be renewed. We can't. Even if you do bring us back to the city and you don't renew us, then this is just going to happen again. That's what the prophet is alluding to. And by the way, it's interesting. As we saw in our study, we're almost certain Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. And now he's praying, renew us, make us new. Do a renewing work in us. Well, do you remember what Jeremiah wrote about under the inspiration of God in Jeremiah chapter 31? He wrote about a new covenant that would renew God's people. Jeremiah chapter 31 speaks to this. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. This is the new covenant. This is our covenant. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. Everyone who's a part of the new covenant actually knows God. In the old covenant, there are a lot of people who are part of the old covenant who weren't actually saved and didn't know God. The least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. What is this? This is the promise of a new covenant that will do a renewing work in the hearts of God's people. That's what the prophet is praying for here. Renew us so that we can stay in fellowship with you. And then in verse 22, he ends with really... 
Verse 22 may be one of the most difficult verses in the whole book to translate and as a result to interpret. It could be one final expression of of strained faith where the prophet is wondering if you can really do this. Verse 22 says, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry for us. It almost makes it seem like, God, I want you to do all this unless you're done with us. And that's a possible interpretation, but I think Jeremiah, the same guy who wrote Jeremiah 31, I don't think he was actually worried about this. So, how do we interpret it? Well, the word unless there, if you do some some study on that, look into it, the word unless, you could make a very strong argument that it should actually be translated even though. Now think about how that changes it. That's a big difference, isn't it? Let me read it again, except with what I think is the appropriate translation. Renew our days of old, even though you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. What's the point there? The point is that God's punishment did not negate God's promises and that God would pour out His renewing grace even though He had punished the people already. In other words, God's renewing grace would overcome the separation and hostility that was caused by Israel's sin. And that, by the way, that's the spiritual biography of every Christian, isn't it? God's Saving and renewing grace has overcome the disgrace and hostility with God that's caused by our sin. You see, only a God willing to transform sinners into holiness can provide the grace that we need to deal with sin. A renewing grace is exactly what we need and is exactly what we have in our God. And with that, The book of Lamentations closes with this reminder of our greatest need. God's grace in our life. See, Lamentations is a book about suffering under the consequences of sin. And for that, grace is absolutely necessary. Without the grace of God, Israel had no hope of salvation from the fall of Jerusalem. And in this way, every sinner on this earth finds himself in a similar position. We have no hope from our fall into sin apart from the grace of God. God's grace was the only answer for Israel's exile, and it is the only answer for sinners seeking salvation and fellowship with God and holiness before God. Or maybe we could put it this way. The prophet closes this book with one last reminder, and the reminder is this. Without the grace of God, we have no hope in our sins, and we have no power to remain faithful in the midst of our suffering. Everything that we've learned in the book of Lamentations in this study that we're now concluding, everything, everything is completely dependent upon the grace of God that's been poured out into our lives through the work of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We serve a God who pours out His grace on His people. We pray with me. Lord, we thank You so much for this truth. It's at the same time sobering because we recognize our incredible need 
But at the same time, it is so joyful to know exactly the grace that we need is exactly the grace that you offer us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we praise you. We praise you for pouring out your grace in our life. And so too, we pray. If there any who is here today within the sound of my voice who has not put their faith in Christ Jesus and received this grace in their own life, Lord, give them the grace to repent. Convict them of their sins and show them their need for Christ as a Savior and their need for your grace in their life. And Lord, may we as a church continue to live and serve and love one another with this grace that you have supplied us with. Lord, we pray all of these things in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.